Okay, so today we'll take a look at chapter 17. And we touch upon three things uh, in chapter 17. Uh, it begins with uh, worship uh, and, and focuses on the quality of sacrifice uh, that we bring to the Lord. And the second part speaks about uh, capital punishment uh, in the context of uh, idolatry. And the third piece uh, speaks about the leadership and focuses on the qualities of a king. And subsequent chapters, uh, they talk about priests and prophets. So, and in chapter 16, we had talked about judges. So Moses is also bringing in uh, the leadership uh, and how it is set up and what is expected. So we'll start with uh, verse one, which talks about uh, what type of sacrifice uh, does God expect? Okay, so here we see that uh, we, Moses is using strong words uh, given by the Lord that if you're bringing a sacrifice that is blemished, then it is an abomination unto the Lord, or it is something that is uh, detestable, or it is something that God doesn't uh, appreciate, uh, God doesn't receive uh, when we do that. So the exhortation is uh, we need to give God uh, the first uh, and the best. And even as we did the seven feasts, uh, we saw that the focus was on coming to God's presence and bringing the very best, uh, whether it is at the start of harvest or it is at the end of harvest, we are always uh, exhorted to give the very best uh, to the Lord. And if you're offering a blemished uh, sacrifice to God, uh, it suggests uh, maybe a lack of understanding that we are not really uh, fully uh, understand what the Lord expects uh, when we come into his presence. And in their context, uh, it could also mean that they are being uh, frugal or cheap. So they are settling for something that might be low quality so that it doesn't cost them uh, that much uh, when they bring that sacrifice. Or they are simply uh, following a tradition, uh, trying to meet the letter of the law. So they don't really care about the quality of sacrifice. Uh, they are simply uh, going through the motions and following uh, the law, uh, so to speak so that they can uh, check uh, checkbox that. And it could also mean a compromised life uh, always uh, leads to a blemished uh, sacrifice, or we can also see it as a partial obedience uh, where they are doing uh, something, uh, but they are not fully uh, obeying the Lord in terms of the instructions. And many of these uh, also apply to our own life. Uh, oftentimes uh, when we look at our life, uh, we are not living a life uh, according to God's uh, highest uh, standard, because sometimes uh, we don't really fully understand or appreciate uh, what God expects. And sometimes uh, we are also frugal uh, in terms of how we are responding to God. Uh, we, we try to cut corners or we try to compromise uh, in what we are doing for the Lord. And many a times we might be simply uh, going through the motions uh, without real uh, understanding or without real uh, experience. So all of these could apply to us also. And God is reminding us uh, through this verse that when we are coming into God's presence, uh, we need to give him the first and the best. And if not, uh, it is considered uh, as an abomination or any type of blemished or partial sacrifice. When we go to Leviticus uh, chapter 22, uh, 17 through 25, uh, it speaks again about the blemished uh, sacrifice, and it gives us a little bit more detail in terms of what is uh, considered as blemished 
or what is considered as not acceptable unto God. Okay, so here we see that uh, detailed uh, instructions are given uh, in terms of the offering. And in the context uh, of the people of Israel, uh, they would understand uh, these uh, instructions. And essentially, the Lord is telling them that uh, he is a holy God, uh, which is a theme that we see running uh, through the Bible. And the Lord expects uh, holiness. He expects purity, uh, especially when it comes to worship, uh, when it comes to our sacrifice. So it speaks about uh, not offering anything that is has a blemish because it will not be acceptable and anything that offers should be uh, perfect. And of course, in the New Testament, uh, we go through Christ. So the perfection of Christ is what we claim uh, when we come uh, into God's presence. So we are not perfect uh, in ourselves, but the perfection of Christ uh, is imputed in us. And through that, we are able to offer a sacrifice uh, or worship that is acceptable. And in verse 25, it also says, uh, neither from a stranger's hand shall he offer the bread of your God of any of these. So it kind of tells us that uh, it has to come from within us. Uh, it cannot be something that is borrowed or something that is copied or something uh, that is not part of our experience. So it has to be something personal that we can relate to, uh, even when it comes to worship. So it cannot be prayers that are written for us uh, to copy and memorize and worship, but it should be something that is part of our personal experience. And again, in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 to 8, uh, again, God asked the question, uh, wherein, wherein have we despised thy name? And God uh, answers it himself and says, uh, ye offer polluted bread upon my altar, and he say, wherein have ye polluted thee, polluted thee? In that ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible, and he offer the, if ye offer the blind for sacrifice, uh, is it not evil? And if ye offer the lame and sick, uh, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased uh, with thee or accept thy person, uh, saith the Lord of hosts. So here again, we see the challenge uh, that is given. And a comparison is made uh, to offering something to a governor uh, or a special guest. And all of us can relate to that. If someone special is coming to our house, then obviously we want to give them uh, the very best. Uh, we won't give them the leftovers or we won't give them uh, something that has that is blemished and without any taste. So he challenges us by saying, if you want to offer the best uh, for the governor, won't you do the same uh, when you come into God's presence? And in New Testament, again, we see the standard for sacrifice and holiness. And in Romans uh, chapter 12 and verse 1, we are told to uh, offer our bodies as a living uh, sacrifice, which is wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. So here we are again asked uh, to live a life that is acceptable unto God. And the way we live our life uh, itself uh, becomes a living sacrifice, uh, itself becomes a worship uh, to God. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, uh, it tells us, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, uh, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy 
uh, which temple ER. So when we put uh, these verses together, again, the call is to live a life of holiness. Uh, the call is to live a life of purity because that is the kind of life that the Lord expects, uh, especially since uh, we are the temple of God and the, and the Holy Spirit dwelleth uh, within us and we need to keep ourselves holy and devoid of any kind of defilement that will make us uh, unholy. So that's a question for us. Uh, are we offering our first fruits? And are we offering our very best to the Lord? Or are we simply going through motions? Are we simply, uh, are we cutting corners? And are we compromising uh, in the way we are living our lives and what we are offering to the Lord? And in Proverbs 15 and 8, it says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is, is delight. So that's what we get from verse 1, that God is telling us that we cannot come into his presence and offer something that is blemished or half-cooked or anything that shows disobedience or partial obedience. In the next section, uh, going from verse 2 uh, through 7, uh, it speaks about idolatry and speaks about the other side, which is uh, what is the penalty uh, for worshipping idols and how is the judgment decided. And it speaks about the punishment by casting the stone. So we can discuss uh, who should cast the first stone and why the punishment is carried out publicly rather than uh, privately. So. So here we see uh, idolatry and what is the punishment that is uh, to be executed. And it also speaks about the process. And it also reminds us that the it extends to both man and woman uh, in terms of the uh, punishment. So idolatry is defined as uh, in verse 2, where it says, they have gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven which I have not commanded. So here we are seeing that uh, God is reminding them what idolatry is. So if they're going to worship anyone other than him, and specifically if they're going to worship something that he has told them uh, explicitly not to do as part of the Ten Commandments, then they would be in violation of the Ten Commandments and they would be guilty of idolatry. And then it lays down the process of how to deal with that sin uh, in the community or in that uh, place. So it gives us a process for justice. Uh, initially, it says uh, we should collect uh, evidence uh, to make sure uh, that the person uh, being uh, who is being accused of idolatry is actually committing idolatry. And, and two or three witnesses uh, should uh, testify. Uh, this should be idolatry, not adultery. So and the punishment would be that they would be stoned to death. And we also read that the first stone should be cast uh, by the accuser or the witness, and the punishment is carried out uh, publicly. And the reason for that could be to uh, evoke fear among others. So when they see that people are actually being punished uh, for idolatry, uh, we would expect that people will exercise restraint or that will act as a deterrent for others from following that practice. And uh, we also see that the first stone is cast by the accuser or the witness. And we know that there is a death 
uh, for false witness. So it avoids the possibility where people are simply coming forward and uh, giving false witness because they know that if they're giving false witness, then they would also die uh, in the same way. So it kind of puts some checks and balances in place uh, in terms of collecting evidence and making sure that there's more than one witness and also putting that requirement that if the person who's bringing the uh, accusation, it's a wrong witness, then they would also be stoned to death. And the goal, as we read in verse 12, is to put away uh, evil from Israel. So idolatry is something that God condemns. Uh, and that's something that's been made uh, explicit uh, in the Ten Commandments. And here we are told uh, what is the consequence and how it would be carried out. And punishment by death, uh, we see that it's quite common uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, if someone commits murder, as we read in Exodus 21, uh, they would be stoned to death uh, if anyone is guilty of adultery. As we read in Leviticus uh, 2010, uh, they would be stoned to death. And if anyone is guilty of homosexuality, uh, we read in Leviticus 20, 13, that they would be stoned to death. So that was a fairly uh, common punishment uh, that we read in uh, Old Testament for sins. Uh, they were given the extreme punishment uh, as a way to avoid those sins and as a way to uh, make people uh, be afraid of committing those sins. But at the same time, uh, even in the Old Testament, we see that people uh, received a pardon for some of the sins uh, that they committed. And we know that David uh, committed murder and he also committed adultery, but he did not die. So he was able to receive uh, forgiveness, uh, even though he lost the son uh, that was conceived uh, through adultery. And when we come uh, to the New Testament, we see that the picture uh, changes uh, because we are told that at the cross, Lord Jesus Christ uh, beca became the payment uh, for all of our sins. So his death, uh, on the cross uh, became a substitution for our sin. So in the Old Testament, for many of the sins that were committed, the consequence would be death. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that all of those sins are covered uh, by the death uh, of one person, uh, which is Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what we're reminded in Romans 6.23, the contrast between death and life. So the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So just like the Old Testament, uh, the sin will always uh, lead to death. Uh, it will always lead to separation from God. And in the Old Testament, we see the picture uh, of uh, a physical death. And when we come to the New Testament, we see that uh, as we keep on sinning, uh, we are we are getting ready to receive the final uh, death sentence or separation from God, uh, unless we choose to believe uh, in the completed work on the cross, uh, in which case the death penalty is removed and we are blessed with the eternal life. So that's the, the blessing of the gospel and the blessing of the cross uh, that we see in the New Testament. And, and we see that the idea of witnesses uh, is also carried forward uh, in the New Testament, uh, as we read in Matthew chapter 18, uh, which speaks about the discipline uh, within the church and the context is 
if there is any disagreement uh, between two people, uh, they should first uh, try to resolve it uh, among themselves. Or if there is any mistake that is done, uh, it should be resolved privately. But then it goes on to say, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more than in the mouth of two or three witnesses, uh, every word may be established. So there's a lot of importance that is given uh, to having witnesses so that uh, issues can be sorted out uh, without any bias. And again, in 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul reminds us that against an elder, uh, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So again, uh, the protection is given to a person so that uh, they don't become, uh, they don't become, they don't, they're not caught in a scandal or a poisonous uh, accusation or gossip and so on. And that goes for people and it also goes for elders. And in verse uh, 8 through 13 uh, of chapter 17, we see that uh, in some cases, uh, it could be escalated to uh, to the judge, uh, which is uh, in the place which the Lord has chosen, which would be uh, Shiloh in that case. So, yeah, yeah, we can read, uh, and it picks up from Deuteronomy sixteen eighteen, which I can read. Uh, Judges and officers shall thou make uh, thee in all thy gates, and they shall judge the people with just uh, judgment. So it speaks about the judges and officers that are uh, set up in the local uh, communities. And the idea is that people would be able to go to the judge and the officers, and they will be able to exercise judgment in all cases. But there might be cases where it is very complex. And in that case, the cases should be brought uh, to the central place. So it would be like going from a local local judge uh, to a Supreme Court uh, where the cases is very uh, complex. Okay, so here we see that uh, most of the cases would be settled by local judges, but uh, as it says in verse eight, uh, if there arise a matter that is too hard for thee, uh, then you should get up and go to the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. So this would be the place uh, uh, where the central place, which would be Shiloh, which was also associated with uh, all the uh, sacrifices. So the understanding is that the local judges, they may not be uh, that experienced, or maybe they don't have the same uh, level of uh, wisdom as the priests in the central place. So they are able to go there and they're able to uh, present uh, their case. And the, and the Levites and the judges, they're able to look uh, into the law and they're able to teach them uh, from the law and also uh, execute the judgment. So oftentimes we associate the priests uh, with, with the sacrifices, but here we see that the priests, uh, they're also uh, doing the teaching and they're also exercising uh, judgment. So as we saw, uh, so it reminds us of the role of judges and priests, and again, the ideas to deal with difficult cases, which local judges uh, are not able to resolve. And after reviewing, the, the judgment is given. And any judgment that is given by them uh, must be followed. And if it is not followed, then they will be put to death. So again, we see that the uh, justice uh, in this situation is very extreme. 
And again, the idea is that by exercising tough uh, justice, uh, it will act as a deterrent and fewer people would be uh, indulging in that sin of idolatry uh, when they know that the consequence or the risk uh, is very high, that you could actually die uh, if you are practicing adultery and justice is rendered uh, against you. It also goes uh, to the idea where we see that there are local judges and there are also judges and priests uh, in the central place. And that's similar to uh, the suggestion that was made by uh, the father-in-law of Moses, uh, which was Jethro, uh, which we have read before in Exodus chapter 18, uh, 17 through 22. And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, the thing that thou doest uh, is not good. So what Moses was doing was uh, he was doing all the work. And his father-in-law said, uh, that is not good because you'll get tired, you'll get uh, exhausted, and it is not uh, something for you to do uh, alone. So he gives him good advice. Uh, he says that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter uh, they shall judge. So in the same way, in the book of Deuteronomy, we see that there are local judges uh, who are able to solve uh, most other cases, but only the bigger cases, complex cases, uh, they are brought to the central place. So that is the wisdom of Jethro, and that is also the wisdom of the Deuteronomy 17, that if you want to avoid uh, burnout and inefficiencies, then we see that the leaders uh, should focus on critical issues and they should delegate the rest so that things can keep happening. And the last section, we see uh, a criteria for selection uh, of kings. So that goes back uh, to the context of leadership, which uh, Moses is trying to introduce uh, in chapters 16, 17, and 18, where he speaks about judges, and then he speaks about kings and prophets and priests. So this is a good section where it talks about kings and what should be uh, expected of kings who are anointed by the Lord. Okay, so uh, this chapter is appearing uh, about 400 years. Uh, before the first uh, king was appointed. So we see that the first uh, verse, which is verse 14, uh, is uh, prophetic in that sense that God is able to anticipate that there would come a time when they are in the promised land that they will actually ask for a king. So that's why it says in verse 14, when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee and shall possess it and dwell therein uh, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like all the other nations that are about me. So that God was already anticipating that at some point, uh, the children of Israel, they will start looking here and there, and they will start copying the patterns of the world, the pattern of the neighbors, and they will start asking for a king. And 15 through 20 are good uh, instructions about what we should uh, see uh, in a king, or even what we should see in ourselves, or what we should see uh, in a leader that is appointed uh, by the Lord. So the desire for a king is what we read in verse uh, 14. Uh, but we know that the Lord was Israel's king. Uh, he was the one who delivered them uh, from the land of uh, Egypt. And he was the one who led them uh, through the uh, wilderness and brought them uh, through the promised land. So the original design was God would be the king of Israel. And people like Moses, uh, they were uh, simply messengers or leaders uh, 
uh, that were used by God to communicate the truth uh, to the people. But here we see that the desire for king uh, is triggered uh, by looking at other nations. So God had a perfect plan uh, for the people of Israel, but when they start looking at other nations, uh, that is how uh, idolatry uh, came into that community. And that is how uh, even the desire for a king uh, came into that community. And that is true uh, also in our own lives. Uh, God has a perfect plan for each one of us, but oftentimes we start looking here and there. Uh, we start looking at our peers, we start looking at our friends, we start looking at our neighbors. And by looking and making comparisons, uh, we also uh, are guilty of having wrong desires or wrong ambitions uh, because we also want to be like them, uh, even though uh, that is not God's plan for us. So that is how oftentimes we make uh, many mistakes uh, because we are trying to copy the world. Uh, we are trying to copy uh, the pattern of the world uh, in our personal life. And we may also be guilty of copying the pattern of other churches, uh, even though uh, that may not be God's uh, perfect plan uh, for our local church. So we need to be very careful uh, in terms of what is God's desire and what is God's uh, perfect plan for us as individuals, as families, and as a church. And when we go to 2 Samuel, we see that uh, it actually happens. What God said in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 17 uh, actually starts to come true uh, after 400 years. So in 2 Samuel chapter 8, uh, 4 and 5, we see that uh, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, who was the prophet at the time. And they said to him, uh, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And that is exactly the same words that were used in Deuteronomy, that the people will ask for a king, uh, similar to uh, other nations. And as we go through the same chapter, 2 Samuel 8, uh, towards the end, in 1920, we see that, but people refused uh, to listen to Samuel. So Samuel was trying to give them counsel that if you appoint a king, uh, it will actually not work in your interest because the king is going to be selfish. Uh, he's going to be doing things to serve his interest and not the interest of the people. But we see that the people uh, rejected the wise uh, counsel and they said, uh, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go before us and to fight our battles. So here we see that uh, they are making that mistake where they are putting their trust uh, in a king uh, to go before them and to fight their battles. But when they look back in history, uh, it was not a person uh, who was giving them victory. Uh, it was God uh, who was going before them. And it was God who was uh, giving them victories in all the battles and all the challenges that they were facing. So obviously they had forgotten history lessons and they were simply comparing themselves uh, with their neighbors and essentially setting themselves up uh, for failure, uh, setting themselves up uh, to depart from God's uh, perfect plan. So this is an interesting passage. Uh, it talks about uh, some of the criteria that God uh, is looking for a king. So even though it may not be God's uh, perfect will, 
but if people are insisting on a king, uh, we we could see it as God's uh, permissive will. And if God is going to allow a king, uh, he still has certain uh, expectations of that king. So obviously Saul was anointed by Samuel and Samuel is anointed by God. And King David was also anointed by Samuel, who's anointed by God. So we can say that God permitted the kings uh, in Israel. But uh, in these verses, we see what God expects uh, from those kings. So firstly, we see in verse 15 that they should be chosen by God. And secondly, uh, in verse 15, again, we see that they should be an Israelite, so they cannot be a foreigner. And the third uh, requirement we see in verse 16, that they should not go back to Egypt uh, to acquire horses, or in other words, uh, they should not trust uh, in horses. And in Isaiah chapter 31 and verse 1, we read, uh, Oh to them that go down to Egypt uh, for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, uh, neither seek the Lord. So that is the tendency of man. We often tend to depend on the old ways of exercising victory or exercising strength. But God is saying that they should not go back to Egypt, which was the old ways, or depend upon the strength of horses uh, for victory. Because as we know in the Red Sea, as we read in Exodus 15, 1, uh, the horse and the rider were thrown into the sea. So our strength uh, is not going to come from horses. Uh, it is still going to come from God, and he's the one who can lead us uh, into victory. And fourthly, in verse 17, uh, we are told they should not multiply wives uh, who will turn the king away. So in the olden days, uh, we would think that uh, kings would form alliances uh, with different nations to bring about peace, and it could also be uh, for securing uh, their own land. So they would have wives from different nations and different places. And uh, in 1 Kings 11.3, we see that uh, Solomon, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, and his wives uh, turned away his heart. So here we see the danger of uh, multiplying wives, which may have a political uh, motive, or it could have a national security motive. But God is telling them that uh, if they're going to cross the border uh, to acquire wives, then they're also going to import uh, all of the practices that their wives are coming with, uh, which would include idolatry and all the corrupt uh, practices. And fifthly, we are, they are told not to multiply wealth, uh, but we often see that the kings uh, tend to become selfish, uh, they tend to become greedy, and wealth could also be a distraction where we start depending on the wealth uh, as a place of security uh, rather than depending on God. So we see that even though Solomon was very wise, uh, he was guilty of violating uh, many of these, uh, as we read in 1 King 10.23. Uh, Solomon, King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and also for wisdom. And of course, God gave him wisdom and God also gave him riches, but he also accumulated more riches as he went along. And in verse 18 to 20 is, uh, is a good counsel. We are told they should maintain a copy of the law 
or copy of the, the laws that we are reading, they should uh, refer to it and they should also obey it. So in other words, uh, they should keep the instructions that God is giving them. Uh, they should constantly go back to it uh, so that they know what is the wisdom of God in different situations and they should also obey it. And finally, they should not be proud, so they should be humble. And so many of these qualities point to the fact that the king should be appointed by God and they should depend on God and they should not be distracted. So we can say that a good king or a good leader in the church or even a good person, a good believer uh, is someone who's chosen by God and who depends on God. So if you're doing God's work uh, in at any level, uh, you would be considered a good disciple, you would be considered a good worker uh, in God's vineyard. If you're chosen by God for that purpose, and you're also depending on God. And we also learn from this passage that those who are chosen, uh, they should not be distracted uh, by the strength of the horses. Uh, they should not be distracted by the charm of women or Women could be a picture of the world or the illusion of riches, which gives, the, gives us a, a false sense of security, a false sense of independence. And God's chosen ones uh, should be rooted in the word of God. So today we have the entire Bible. So if you are trying to do God's work uh, without being rooted in God's word, then obviously we'll make uh, many mistakes and we will go astray, and we will also lead others astray. And finally, God's uh, chosen ones must also be humble, which again says that we should uh, depend on God uh, to do God's work. When we go to the New Testament, we see that Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he also set an example of great uh, humility. As we read in Mark chapter 10, uh, 42 to 45, it says, Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, uh, ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles uh, exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be the servant of all. So in other words, uh, the king should be the servant of all. So that is a great high expectation. Uh, we don't expect the king uh, to be humble and serving uh, the nation or serving the low caste people. But here we are told that whoever wants to be the chiefest uh, should be the servant of all. And of course, uh, Lord Jesus Christ, he set that standard uh, for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto. So even though he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, uh, he did not come to be ministered unto, but he came to minister and to serve. And finally, he gave his life uh, as a ransom for many. So that is the example that we should be striving for. Uh, no matter what our position is, uh, we should make sure that we are chosen by God, uh, we are depending on God, and we are living a life of humility. And finally, uh, we can ask that question, whether we are prophets, uh, priests, and kings. And as we've seen before, a prophet is simply uh, anyone who speaks, uh, speaking the word of God. So just like Moses was communicating the truth uh, to the children of Israel, 
uh, in that sense, he was a prophet. And also, as we read in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, uh, prophecy is not simply prophesying about the future, but it is also someone who's able to edify, who's able to exhort, and who's able to comfort. And oftentimes that will happen uh, through the word of God. We are able to edify, we are able to exhort and comfort uh, with the word of God. So in that sense, uh, all of us uh, could be prophets because when we are praying, we can hear from God and we can communicate that to others. And we can also uh, use the word of God to edify, exhort and comfort others. And when we come to Revelation chapter one, uh, five and six, uh, it reminds us that Lord Jesus Christ has cleansed us uh, with his blood and he has made us kings and priests uh, unto God and his father, uh, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So it reminds us that God has given us that uh, elevated position of being a king and a priest. And as a priest, uh, we could be interceding for others and we could also be offering ourselves uh, as a living sacrifice, which would be the function of a priest. And even as we saw, the priest was also acting as a judge. The priest was also acting as a teacher. So all of that could be rolled into that. So Lord Jesus Christ was a prophet, a priest, and a king. And we are given the same privilege uh, in the word of God through our salvation experience. So that's what chapter 17 is about. Uh, it speaks about the quality of sacrifice. Firstly, that we should not offer anything to the Lord, uh, which is uh, blemished or which shows uh, an half-hearted response or which shows that we are simply going through the motions uh, without really understanding what God expects. And in verses 2 to 13, uh, we uh, saw uh, what is the punishment for idolatry and how it is executed. So the punishment for idolatry is, uh, uh, is being stoned to death uh, at the witnesses of two or more. And we also see that the punishment is carried out uh, publicly so that it acts as a deterrent. Uh, but when we come to the New Testament, we see that the wages of sin is death. And Lord Jesus Christ has fully paid uh, for all of those sins. So even though we deserved uh, to be stoned to death, uh, we have been given uh, forgiveness. And that is what Lord Jesus Christ did uh, when he met that woman uh, who was accused of adultery. Uh, he said, whoever is guilty can cast the first stone. And we know that nobody cast the stone. And we see that even Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he did not cast a stone, uh, even though he was sinless but he simply forgave her. So that is the message that we get in the New Testament, that when we go to the Lord, uh, no matter what our sins are, uh, we are not uh, stoned to death, but rather we are able to receive forgiveness. And finally, this chapter reminds us of some of the qualities that the Lord expects uh, from a leader or from anyone in general, uh, that we should be chosen by God for the work he has given us. And we should also depend on God uh, only then we would be able to see the fruit. 